Relatively Prime was made possible thanks to the 159 people who decided to give it their money on Kickstarter. Today, in particular, I would like to thank Edward Bradshaw, John Mulder, and Doug Chatham, as well as my Kickstarter producers, Daniel Greenspun, Colin Wright, Douglas Dollars-Stewart, Jay Frosting, Martin Dominic, Cody Palmer, and Edmund Harris. Thank you all so very much for making Relatively Prime a reality. The mathematics that we all learn in school is great. No, really, it is. How can anyone get through life without knowing how to add or subtract, multiply or divide, solve for an unknown, or factor a polynomial? Okay, I went a little bit overboard. You might be able to get through life without that last one. But the point still stands. The mathematics that we all learn in school is great. It isn't everything, though. There are a lot of other tools that mathematics has to offer that could enrich people's lives. Today, I'm going to rummage through that old mathematical toolbox. Oh, that is heavier than I remember it being. Whew. And showcase three such tools that I feel are going to be very important in the coming years. Just as soon as I can find them. Come on, where, where are you? Where, where is it? Where? it? Stay, stay right there. I'll be right back. I am Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Relatively Prime. Stories from the Mathematical Domain. give a, a short little kind of basic definition of what uh, game theory actually is. Game theory is a theory of uh, strategic decision making with interdependent choices and a stress on interdependence. Your best outcome depends on what one or more other players choose. So it cannot be a unilaterally best decision, such as should I carry an umbrella to work? That depends on nature which is assumed uh, not to have preferences. It's impassive, it's just there. You learn there's a 30% probability of rain, and you make uh, an expected value calculation. Is it worth lugging the umbrella to work, or should I take a chance, a 70% chance that it won't rain and I won't need the umbrella? Uh, that's what we call a decision, uh, or a one-person game, a game against nature. So game theory is mostly concerned with two or more players, each of whom may make choices. These choices uh, lead to an outcome. And the best outcome, typically, for you, depends on what the other player or players do. There's a mathematical theory that um, goes back to a path-breaking book uh, published by von Neumann and Morgenstern in 1944 called Theory of Games and Economic Behavior. And that started the field. 
but it's really taken off only in the last generation uh, with work by economists as well as mathematicians and other social scientists. That is Stephen Roms, a professor of politics at New York University, where one of his specialties is mathematical modeling using game theory. I caught up with him in January 2012 at the joint mathematics meetings that were held in Boston. As he said, game theory is all about decisions. One of the common examples of game theory is the prisoner's dilemma, where two people are arrested and they have to decide whether or not they're going to give each other up for shorter sentences. Another example would be the game of chicken. Uh, yes, uh, if you're in a confrontation uh, with somebody else, we often speak of uh, you being in a game of chicken. The question then is, uh, do you take a cooperative, a non-cooperative stand? If both of you take a non-cooperative stand, uh, tough it out, then it could lead to disaster, and that you want to both avoid, whereas you both back off, then that's a kind of cooperative outcome, but it's not your best outcome. Your best outcome is when uh, you confront the other player and the other player caves in. And the problem with achieving that outcome is each player has an incentive to depart and confront and hope that the other player gives in, but if the other player also is confrontational, uh, you end up at the disastrous outcome. And uh, it's been used to model all kinds of situations, such as uh, the conflict between uh, the Soviet Union and the United States and the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. Game theory has moved far beyond the prisoner's dilemma and the game of chicken, though. In fact, it's forever evolving and becoming applicable in more and more diverse areas, a point that is made perfectly clear by Professor Brahms' newest book. Now, you recently uh, have published a book that, that kind of takes a, what to me was a very uh, novel uh, subject matter because you were looking at game theory actually in the humanities, which That's is right. not something that most people would typically think of a abstract mathematical concept uh, right. being applied to. So I was, I was wondering, what made you think of, of taking taking game theoretical modeling and then looking at humanities instead of, you know, economy and political science? Well, I thought a lot had already been done in economics, politics, and other areas of social sciences in particular, and that uh, there had been some very interesting applications in the humanities. And by humanities, I mean uh, I covered several subjects, uh, literature, history, philosophy, theology, and the Bible, and law. These were unusual applications of uh, game theory, and I had done some in the past, so I thought if I brought some of these together, I might be able to persuade humanists uh, that this theory, in giving a strategic exegesis of situations you don't normally associate with game theory, would be of interest. I looked at uh, primarily conflicts in international relations between countries in the 19th and 20th century, and I looked at applications in law, the confrontation between the Supreme Court and the President in a couple of instances. So these are examples of uh, what I considered unusual but still interesting and uh, insightful applications of game theory. Now, when you started looking at uh, humanistic works and, and applying them through a game theory, what sort of new perspective did that allow you to bring to kind of the study of, say, a novel or a play or the Bible? 
Uh, okay, let's look at an example. I, I think that uh, the usual interpretation of what the main action in Hamlet is that Hamlet's this vacillating, indecisive character, can't make up his mind, and ultimately that results in tragedy. And uh, looking at it from a game theory pr perspective, my argument would be that, that Hamlet did not have sufficient information to go after Claudius, his uncle, who had killed his father, he suspected, and married his mother. So he had to gather information. And at the same time, Claudius, worried about Hamlet's discovering the murder, had to try to determine whether Hamlet would go after him or not. So each, in a sense, was stalking the other. That's a very strategic kind of situation. And for example, in the play, Hamlet stages this play within a play in which um, Claudius, viewing a kind of reenactment of the murder, walks out very embarrassed uh, that, in a sense, he's been revealed. Uh, and that's the evidence that Hamlet wanted and needed to go after Claudius. And Claudius now realizes that Hamlet is on to him. And I interpret that in terms of uh, choices of whether the players uh, should be aggressive against each other. One can't go out, in, even in those times, and try to kill somebody without reason. So Hamlet had to gather evidence that the murder had been committed by Claudius. Claudius had to get evidence that Hamlet was pursuing him. And uh, ultimately, they both die. <laughs> uh, so that's an example where I think you give a different twist to the common interpretation, which is a psychological interpretation. I think it was uh, very strategic on the part of both players. And that is just one of the examples of the work that Professor Brahms is doing with the intersection of game theory and the humanities. One of the things that I find most intriguing about all of this is the insight that such study of humanistic works might be able to give us into ourselves. Stories, just like mathematics, are one of the ways that humans have modeled the world. But stories have the added benefit of also being how we model ourselves. And one can ask the question, uh, why on occasion do you escalate a conflict? And uh, in, for example, Macbeth's case, the question was, why did Lady Macbeth try to persuade his husband to kill King Duncan? Macbeth himself was ambitious, aspired to the throne, but wanted to honor his king at his own castle. But Lady Macbeth wanted this even more, and she thought her husband Macbeth did not have the fortitude to carry out the murder. So one tries to search for an explanation of why this created a crisis in their marriage. She actually accuses him of being a coward, unmanly, because he's not willing to be an accomplice in the murder. Finally, he succumbs, helps in the murder of King Duncan. So, it seemed to me these were interesting applications because they raised questions about the choices uh, the characters made. And I would argue these choices in all cases were rational choices, given the goals of the characters. Lady Macbeth uh, wanted to accede to the throne, become the queen. Hamlet wanted revenge if indeed uh, Claudius had killed his father. And there are other instances in which I try to show that these uh, extreme reactions were uh, based on, if not calculations, implicit calculation, explicit calculations 
They were based on implicit calculations that reflected the interests of the characters. One normally thinks of game theory in terms of ordinary calculations of characters uh, to increase profits in a firm or uh, to get an opponent in a political situation to help you rather than uh, seek to harm you. What I was interested in is the extent to which uh, fiction uh, and history to an extent can be explained in terms of the, what well, some would argue, the emotional reactions of the characters. One tends to think of rational people as uh, cerebral, cool-headed, making these calculations. And I thought that the stronger reactions of characters, especially when they uh, express negative emotions like frustration that leads to anger or jealousy, also could be uh, interpreted in these terms. So it was kind of a challenge to look at uh, applications in which emotions play a major role and explain why these uh, emotions surfa surfaced, and second of all, uh, why indeed it was rational. When I asked Professor Brahms if he thought that authors could benefit from using game theory in the creation of their stories, he was without any doubt that it could. In fact, he believes that there is at least one author who had a sensational, natural understanding of the topic. I think, of course, Shakespeare was a natural. Uh, he didn't need a game theoretic model. He got things right. In fact, I think if you cannot explain a Shakespeare play in game theoretic terms, the problem is not with game theory, it's with you uh, <laughs> and not getting it right. Shakespeare got it right. You have to struggle to understand what must have gone through Shakespeare's mind and the plot as he constructed if you can't explain it well in game theory. So game theory can help us figure out whether or not to roll over on our friends in the clink, when to yield when dealing with nuclear weapons, why you would stage a play in order to figure out if your uncle killed your father, and just how to convince your husband to commit murder. Seems to be an all-powerful tool, right? Well, Professor Brahms did stress that it's not a panacea. And come to think of it, computing game-theoretic equations for all the decisions that you have to make in your daily life is probably not the best idea in the world. That's not to say, though, that having an understanding of the topic is not useful. I think that we're all game theorists. We all are making these calculations, uh, but they're not written down, they're not explicit. So I think a course in game theory, and they're pretty common now in economics, political science, could make you think more explicitly about situations which present problems, dilemmas, uh, and help you think them through. So I think in that sense you could deal with difficulties in your life by uh, understanding them better. Okay, so our next tool has to deal with the future. Well, it has more to do with whether or not you're actually going to be there. This may seem like an odd place to start, but there are a lot of things out there that are trying to stop you from seeing the future. Even your breakfast. That's right. Have you ever thought about whether or not your breakfast 
is trying to kill you. Okay, uh, could you tell me, say, what you had for breakfast? Yeah, usually I had, I was, I knew I was going to be asked that, so I made sure I had a healthy breakfast of muesli. <laughs> and a sausage. So, so, so no fry up today. No, no, I had a sausage. I couldn't resist the sausage. But no bacon sandwich. This early morning gourmet has a name. Okay, yep, my name's David Spiegelholter. And a reason to think so deeply about breakfast. I'm the Winton Professor of or for the public understanding of risk, I'm never quite sure which, and um, I'm here in the Stats Lab in Cambridge University. So, Professor of the Public Understanding of Risk. How awesome is that job title? Not to mention important. Risk is an ever-growing area of study within mathematics, and it's trying to quantify the dangers in life, be they physical, financial, international, or anything else. Plus, how great would it be to really be able to concretely talk about how dangerous that breakfast of yours really is? And um, although the job's called risk, um, you know, this word means almost anything to everybody. Well, you know, people say, oh, you know, you, you, know, you do risk. You can come and talk to us about pensions. Or, you know, you do risk. You can come and talk to us about volcanoes or something like that. Now, I am struggling to understand a bit about pensions and volcanoes. But when I got the job, I had no idea whatsoever. The point is the word means absolutely everything to everybody. That's a bit of a problem. From a technical perspective, risk would probably be best defined as the probability that an action will lead to a negative result. And that really should be it. That is a clear and unambiguous definition, but it's also not really what risk means in the English language. There, risk can be a person. Risk can be an action, a loss, or even what makes you feel alive. Risk can have to do with death, with money, with security. She could be a risk. He can risk it all. You can be told to just take a risk, and I definitely won't risk my life on getting anyone to agree on a definition of risk. That is probably why the professor prefers the word uncertainty. I feel that uncertainty is a less sort of value-laden thing than risk. Everyone assumes as soon as they hear risk in this country they think of health and safety and you know trying to protect children and you know the whole business of you know can we reduce risk i'm not actually interested very much in reducing risk i couldn't care less what people do with their with, <laughs> with their shabby little lives if they want to drink and smoke themselves to death that's completely up to them but i do feel that people should understand the consequences of their actions whether they're going for good things like buying lottery tickets or whether they're going for bad things like like smoking some, you know, whatever, or taking drugs. So um, I view it as something, any situation where you don't know what's going to happen and things maybe turn out well or they may turn out badly. And that's what I, that's what I do. And that is beautiful because it just covers absolutely everything. I'm not, I'm not a pure maths department. You believe it? <laughs> what am I doing here? But I, you know, I started off as a mathematician and uh, I am a stat professional statistician. So I, I, I definitely came at this job with a very numerical mathematical sense. I thought, Yo, you know, let's measure risk, let's put numbers on it, let's weigh things up, do a proper sort of, you know, economic models for things. And uh, I suppose in the few years I've had this job, I'm, I'm, you know, tending away from that perspective rather strongly. But don't worry, he hasn't given up on mathematics entirely. I mean, I really believe, you know, the mathematics is absolutely crucial, absolutely vital. What I don't believe is that it is everything. So the, my, my feeling is that you need to push the quantification as far as you possibly can, and but no further, and realize that there will always be stuff that does not fit within that mathematical framework, and that's really important. 
So I, I, it's just getting that balanced. But when you hear somebody telling you something like, oh, you shouldn't smoke, or don't do this, don't do that, invest this, buy this, do, don't do that, you can say, oh, hang on, you know, why not? Let's take this apart. Every risk story, in the, I mean, every news... Listening to the radio this morning, there was some... Ah, oh, you know, usual risk story about something or other and how you shouldn't do it. I forgot what the latest one was. I was shouting. I, every morning I shout at the radio and say, <laughs> ask him what the risks are. Oh, yeah. no. oh, what's going on? What actually, you know, the, at the moment in this country, they're all discussing about border controls. Nobody deconstructs it. How many terrorists are being let in? Someone can estimate. What are the risks? Unacceptable breaches in security. How do they know? Come on, someone put some numbers on this stuff. Let's take the story apart. The issue with security that he mentions is a common one that you find in probability. It's called the problem of false positives. Say you developed a test that is 100% accurate at determining if an unseen red candy is actually red, and only says that non-red candies are red one out of every 100,000 times. That test sounds really good, because your favorite color of candy is red. Now, think about using this test on a million pieces of candy, in which there's only one red piece. The test is going to report back to you that there are 11 red pieces of candy in that pile, and only one of them is actually going to be red. Now, that test doesn't sound nearly as nice, does it? So, as Professor Spiegelhalter says... Well, the analogy I always used is, if you're looking for a needle in a haystack, there's a lot of bits of straw that look like needles. <laughs> it's going to take you a long time. That's exactly it. In most situations that involve risk, we really are looking at piles of straw that look just like needles. But really, this is only a symptom, not the problem itself. See, there's just our brains just aren't good at doing probability. And uh, the great thing about maths is uh, it gives us a way to calculate it. And, and, and a lot of mathematics is giving us the ability to do things and to think logically and to explore things beyond what we can just do naturally, which is amazing. And, and maths is great for teaching your brain how to think about these things and do them. Just a second. That's not the professor, but well, I guess we can let him finish anyway. Uh, humans uh, are terrible at understanding risk. We have, we have no innate intuitive sense of probabilities and risk, and it's very hard for us to get a nice natural handle on it. A statement as boldly declarative as that really does need to be attributed, so let me introduce you to... I'm Matt Parker and I do mass communication based in the maths department at Queen Mary University of London. Now you might wonder why I'm speaking to Matt Parker, a simple mathematics communicator, when I have David Spiegelhalter, the Winton Professor of the Public Understanding of Risk? Well, the answer is simple. Uh, so uh, we do a show uh, called uh, Your Days Are Numbered, The Mass of Death, uh, and it's a collaboration between myself and another performer called Tamandra Harkness, and I've got a background in maths and math teaching and stand-up, and she's got a background in performing arts, and uh, she loves maths and um, stand-up and journalism. And so we're like, well, this is great. I mean, I can talk about statistics and you can talk about the way the media looks at uh, risk. And so between us, uh, we went and begged an organization called the Wellcome Trust and who do uh, medical bits and pieces and said, please give us some money so we can do a show about uh, death and statistics. And they went, all right. And they peeled us off a little bit of their wad uh, for us to pop up to the Edinburgh Fringe to perform a show about death. Uh, and it was, it's been great fun uh, putting it together. And audiences seem to like it. They seem to like coming and seeing a show about maths and death. 
Thanks to Matt, we now have two problems. Not only is the language surrounding risk ambiguous, people also do not have a good intuitive understanding of the mathematics and probability that underlies it. Thankfully, school has taught me one thing, and that's that some good, solid, concrete examples will help clear up any problem in mathematical understanding. So, here goes. According to Matt, in the UK, 348 people die yearly from foreign bodies entering natural orifices, meaning that the probability of dying from such an incident is around 0.00006%. So, that clears up all the misunderstandings about probability, right? No? You sure? Okay. He also told me that between 50 and 100 people die every year in the UK from falling out of bed. So the probability of dying from that is 0.00001%. Now, I know that everything's crystal clear. Still not? Hmm. Well, let's just see what the professor has to say. Well, one of the classic examples is in talking about the benefits of drugs. You know, I'm in my 50s. I could take statins to try to reduce the risk of, of um, heart attack or stroke. My risk for the next 10 years of heart attack or stroke is about 12, 13%, something like that. And I could probably reduce it by a third if I took statins. Now, uh, the standard drug advert, and particularly in the US, where, of course, they can do direct consumer drag ad drug advertising, talks about cut your risk by a third, take statins, blah, blah. You know, I won't mention the trade names, but that's what they say. And so, and then down in the print, the tiny print at the bottom, it says this will reduce your five-year risk from three percent to two percent. Now, hang on, you do the sums. That means that over five years uh, is reducing your absolute risk just by one percent. That means a hundred people are taking these drugs for five years with all the side effects. It's going to prevent one heart attack. Now, maybe that's worthwhile. Maybe you consider that's worthwhile. I actually don't consider it worthwhile. I'm not going to take them. So. But, you know, where is that information being communicated? Both about the transparent communication about the side effects, the communication about the absolute risks, rather than the relative risks. Let us deconstruct what he's saying about relative versus absolute risk. If you look at this statin's example, they claim to reduce the risk of a heart attack or stroke by one-third. This sounds great and really seems to be worth any side effect that the drug may happen to carry. But we should look closer. If we let the risk that someone is going to suffer a heart attack or stroke be 3 out of 100, that would mean that if you took statins, your risk would drop to 2 out of 100. That is only a reduction in risk by 1%, and those side effects are starting to look less and less worth it the whole time. This means that we now have three problems. The language surrounding risk, lack of understanding of probability, and absolute versus relative risk, and no solution seems evident. Maybe if we try to solve that first and most fundamental problem of language, the others might become easier to deal with. So, let's introduce a brand new word. And this idea of a million in one risk is, was given the name micromort. So it is one micro, it's a millionth of your mortality. It's a micromort. And so if you do something with a micromort of risk associated with it, then uh, there's a one in a million chance you would die doing it. There, we have our new word and what a word it is. Just say it along with me. Micromort really skips off the tongue, doesn't it? But what are we going to use it for? I, 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 God, I wish I'd made it up. It was Ron Howard in Stanford in the 1970s made it up. And uh, he used to, <laughs> you know, it was a, one in a, a micromort is a one in a million chance of sudden death, essentially accidental death, or, you know, really sudden death. So, um, and he used to, apparently, uh, it's rumored that um, he, he worked out that it was 
so many micromorts every time he flew, and uh, he was willing to be paid so much to take on this micromort. So when he put in his consultancy fees, he'd, he'd charge per hour, but he'd also add on for how many micromorts he'd experienced in doing the consultancy. <laughs> and it's, I think it's so cool. So I think I'm going to charge for it. And in fact, of course, it does go into my thinking now. If I have to drive to give a talk, I'm much more reluctant to give a talk if I have to drive. I've become, I've become actually rather conscious of this stuff. I really don't like driving now. Yeah, I, I, mean, you know, I quite enjoy it, but I, I really try to cut down on driving and, and to take the train because it is so much safer. So um, I become, have become more conscious because of it. Anyway, micromort, one in a minute chance of sudden death. It's a great unit, and I, I find it goes down I, from small kids to radio presenters all love it because suddenly it provides a, a whole number unit. The crucial thing is then you can work in whole numbers, no fractions, no decimals, no, no per something or other. It's a whole number, and it allows you to make comparisons across a wide range of activities, um, from taking illegal drugs to going horse riding. Um, there was a big fuss in this country last year when the head of drug, the drug um, advisory board got sacked, because essentially because he was making comparisons between taking ecstasy and what he called the addiction to horse riding, which was equacy. And he said, they're about as dangerous, horse riding and ecstasy. It's a toss-up, they're about as dangerous. And, uh, and he got into such trouble for this, you know, outraged, you know, politicians. How can you compare the two? Well, of course you can compare the two. It's a fantastic comparison. These are both voluntary activities taken for, in, for fun by young people. Okay, one is is wholesome horse riding in the countryside and the other is not wholesome which is popping pills in some club and dancing all the time so but they're still you know they really are very broadly comparable except one you wear a crash helmet one you don't so it, it, it's it's it really um you know I, I thought this was a fantastic comparison so I, I, I now you know compare heroin with hang gliding you know I take every opportunity to make completely <laughs> inappropriate comparisons <laughs> So the micromort, it's, it's a one in a million. Why it's quite a good unit is that um, in this country, anyway, 50 people die sudden deaths every day. They're murdered or they're run over or they, their satellite falls on their head. Or Actually, that hasn't happened, but it will, it will <laughs> one day. Um, I, and I could tell you how many micromorts that is. Well. So, <laughs> so um, uh, 50 a day, and I had about 50 million people. So you know, on average, we wandering around ex in, ex are exposed to about one micromort a day, some more than others, depending on their life and we we're happy with it. we seem to be happy with this so as a unit of risk one in a million chances is, is so small enough to be noticed but um you know or big enough to be noticed but small enough so that we don't actually care too much about it so it's a good unit now so one your micromort on average in this country that means you can drive about 250 miles for a micromort you walk about 20 miles about six miles on a motorbike um you can go hang gliding which is about eight micromorts um, skydiving, I'm using actually US data, skydiving is seven micromorts a dive, and people do lots of them. And, um, you know, the US site is very good about how many people smack into the ground every year. And we know, we know how many dives there are, so it's seven micromorts. Scuba diving, five micromorts a dive. They've been very reliable from, for over time, that one's been. So, um, I think these are averages, but, uh, and they provide a nice comparison. Having a, then you go into having an anaesthetic. Um, emergency is about 10, uh, an ordinary anaesthetic is about 5. That's the anaesthetic, not the operation. Giving birth, about 80 in this country, more in the US on average. It will vary, of course, hugely in the US. Um, and, uh, and of course, thousands and thousands in some other countries. So um, it, it, it enables you taking ecstasy about one every time. 
heroin, it's about 30 a day just from being a heroin user, um, serving in Afghanistan for the UK troops at their peak, it was about it was about 30 a day, that's about 200 miles on a motorbike for all thousands of people serving in Afghanistan. So, you know, this is this is high risk stuff. Being a bomber, being in a bomber, a U, in the UK bomber force, in the British bomber force in the Second World War, was one micromort a second. I, it, I don't think anyone has ever done anything, apart from being an officer in the First World War, of such sustained danger. I think it's being a, in, the, in a bomber in the Second World War. Unbelievable. So, um, you know, really, ah. so you, you get these, you can make these comparisons between everyday and not such everyday activities. There we go. We have a way to talk about the risk of sudden death in a concrete and clear way that can be understood by everyone. But it's still only talking about the risk of sudden death. Most of the things that we do in life, such as that breakfast, are not going to fell us so quickly. So how can we take this idea even farther? As fate holds, Professor Spiegelhalter can give us a glimpse of just what that would look like. We've in fact, and this is our idea, have developed developing this new unit which I'm testing called a micro life. Now, a micro life is what we're calling 30 minutes off your life expectancy, the length of your life. Now, what we call a micro life, a million half hours is 57 years. Which, you know, so you're talking to a young adult in their mid 20s, their life expectancy is another about another 57 years. So it's, it's the length of your sort of adult life, thinking of adults from as, as mid 20s, when people are starting to think about this stuff maybe a bit more. And um, so 30 minutes off your life. So, um, you know, simple, simple, simple calculations smoking two cigarettes is one micro life, it's 30 minutes off the length of your life. But, slightly longer than it takes you to smoke the cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> a few drinks is a micro life. So that's about probably about the time it takes you to drink the drinks. <laughs> and um, uh, being overweight, I'm Philip, five kilograms overweight. And uh, that's about one micro life a day. So I'm using that up. But so I'm trying to counteract that by you know, taking a bit more exercise and eating healthily. So uh, these are quite interesting. So it's, it's, it's changing the metaphor from immediate risk, which isn't appropriate, to one in which the speed at which you're living your life. Now, it's been found in terms of changing people's behaviour that that metaphor can be quite useful. It's been found that telling people, for example, smokers their lung age is quite useful. In other words, their lungs are ageing faster than they are. They've got the lungs of someone who's 20 years old or something like that. I'm working on things with the, with the um, cardiovascular groups on um, uh, heart age, which is now being used by a number of places around the world to communicate to people that they're damaging their heart by their lifestyle. You know, you're 45, but your heart is, 50, is that of a 55-year-old. Quite a powerful image, and it's to do, instead of saying, oh, you'll live, instead of, you know, being, dying at 90, you might die at 92 if you do this, which frankly, you know, isn't going to impress anyone, particularly young people, I mean, for goodness sake, who cares? Um, there's a lovely quote that I use from a popular newspaper, The Sun, which, um, uh, it was in this debate about bacon sandwiches that I've been involved in, so, and a, a doctor wrote, I'd rather have the occasional bacon sandwich than be 110 and be dribbling into my all brand. Which I thought, yes, he's right. So talking about living a bit longer at the end of your life is not a great metaphor for, for actually communicating to people the impact of what they're doing. The idea of living your life faster, in other words, going to, rushing towards your death, is quite a powerful metaphor. Again, not that I care what, whether people, what they do, but you know, people should be aware of those consequences. Two new words have been invented. 
Metaphors have been changed, and there's a professor who has risk right in his title. So it really must be just about the most important tool in the entire world's toolbox, right? Uh, what kind of importance does uh, proper knowledge of risk or proper knowledge of uncertainty, uh, if you use, use the term uh, from your website, uh, how, how, will, how would that help uh, you know, your normal citizen, your, your person on the street? I, I, I think, um, in many ways, not at all. I mean, I always think that um, people have been around for quite a long time. Probability theory hasn't. It's a real Johnny-come-lately. It's unbelievable. It's, you know, 1660s, really, it was developed. You know, it's only been around for a little while. The idea of rational economic decision-making, although Daniel Bernoulli was talking about that in, you know, in the beginning of the 18th century, is very recent indeed. And so it really irritates me when, when economists and other statisticians start wagging their finger at the general public and saying how, oh, how irrational they are because they're not obeying the rules of, of expected utility. Absolutely. Oh no, I better not use a rude word. Oh no, that you, you is, can use a rude word. Such, okay, to use an English phrase, it's absolute bollocks. Are they saying that before 1660 everybody was irrational and stupid just because they didn't use expected utility? It's all nonsense. How dare they? It's so arrogant to think that somehow people are being irrational because they're not using probability and, and weighing up everything in a, in a numerical sense. It's absolute nonsense. Professor, what are you saying? Are, are you trying to put yourself out of a job? Let's see what Matt has to say. I, how, how important do you think uh, a, a proper understanding of risk is for, for people today? I, don't, I mean, to live your day-to-day -day life, probably it isn't, right? Because oh, you can survive on. quite happily. Come on, Matt. Really? This is just getting ridiculous. Maybe I cut him off too early. Let's listen to that tape again. I, how, how important do you think... Uh, a, a proper understanding of risk is for, for people today? I, don't, I mean, to live your day-to-day -day life, probably it isn't, right? Because you can survive quite happily. However, that's not the whole story, because whenever you read a newspaper or watch on TV, there's some medical story about... Uh, in fact, just the week we're recording this, one came out about uh, the way you cook red meat doubles your risk of intestinal cancer or something. Uh, and we're constantly seeing these stories, and they're throwing risks at us, and they're scaring us with these risks. And people, people are changing their behavior based on a, a scary statistic they saw in the paper. And so now I think it is important that you have a nice, relaxed, rational approach to risk and statistics so you can interact with the media and you can interact with medical advice to know what's going on. Because some of these uh, bits of advice could be very useful and it could uh, be important for your particular situation, life and state of health, and you could benefit greatly from knowing this. Whereas other bits might just be scaring you into unnecessary behavioral change. And so I wanted to give people by watching the show, the mathematical confidence to look deeper into the statistics they see. Because you can look up the original stats behind some of these stories. You can look up your original baseline risk when they just report what the change in your risk is. And so I think uh, your day-to-day -day life, you probably don't need to have a great sense of risk. But if you want to understand the media and if you want to avoid scare stories, then you do. Yeah, so uh, it, and do you think that, that this uh, kind of need to better understand risk is, is kind of a uh, something that has been caused by uh, our acceleration into kind of like a media age and information age, uh, is that it's more important now than, say, it was 50 or 100 years ago? 
I think it is, things have changed in terms of the news we see. Uh, because if you look at um, deaths, well, this isn't a show because it's very depressing, right? We won't have a very upbeat show. But uh, very young children dying, not that many young children dying. But the problem is uh, they are all pretty much, without exception, reported on in the media. And so you pretty much read about every single death in some age categories. And our brains go, well, if we're seeing these few deaths, it must be happening all the time. It must be very dangerous. And it's not. It's just that we're messing with our input. We're used to seeing a little bit of information and extrapolating. And because of modern media, we see all the information. And we assume that you can extrapolate from that. And it's much, much worse. And so, uh, yeah, with our modern lives with the media is messing with our ability to assess actual risks out there. Oh. I was really starting to get worried that I had just spent 20 minutes on a tool that my hand-chosen experts were going to throw not just under the bus, but right into the ditch. But Matt's answer does make me feel better. Maybe we should go back and listen to a bit more of the professor's answer, too. But people have made decisions in the face of uncertainty you know, in, for a long time. And, you know, as all the work that's been going on has shown that generally people use a lot of shortcuts, heuristics, which, um, you know, you might call them biases, I prefer calling them rules of thumb. In it, which work really well most of the time. However, as Kahneman, Sversky and others have shown, there are certain situations in which people can be really misled by these heuristics. Framing the way the question is framed is a classic one. You know, you can just get people to say what you know whatever you want, essentially by framing the question a different way. The way that numbers are framed has been shown to be can be very influential. So, and they, I think people are just great. I love them. But they have to watch out for when people are trying to manipulate them. People are trying to flog them gambles, like, you know, or money things. People are actually trying to flog them gambles, like the absolute crummy lottery that's just started off in this country. Terrible. Um, and, uh, and newspapers, when they're trying to sell them risk stories. Politicians, when they're trying to say, oh, you've got to be concerned about this, that, and the other. Well, why should I be concerned about this? You, that in those situations where people are trying to manipulate you to think one thing or the other, which is happening all the time in every newspaper story, every time you open a news bulletin, you really need to be able to take those numbers apart. And uh, if people are using evidence, either if they're not using numbers, you should be asking why not. And if they are using numbers, you should say, I don't believe them. <laughs> or at least I don't believe the way you're necessarily believe the way you're telling me about them. There we go. Risk is an important tool and only getting more so in an ever more media saturated culture. From now on, please make sure that you count your micro-morts, don't waste too many of your micro-lives, and as the professor says, question all the numbers that you hear. There is one more little bit of information about risk that I want to share. It's from Matt Parker's show. He did the math and figured out that his audience had about a 0.000043% chance of dying while watching it. I reckon it's about the same for all of you listening. So do be careful. Ah, here it is, the very last tool, and I've been saving the best for last. The name of this tool is geometric reasoning, and depending on who's wielding it, it can be a real lifesaver. I went to the University of Arkansas to talk to Professor Edmund Harris about it. So it's, it's 2012, it's, it's December 2012, we know the apocalypse is coming. I thought it was Ragnarok. 
Oh yeah, Ragnarok. Uh, it's just, I mean, just general apocalypse type stuff. So the world is coming to an end. Ragnarok is here. What sort of math is going to help me survive in the post-apocalyptic world? Well, I can tell you one thing. There's mathematical thinking which might give you a house. That is right. This is a mathematical tool that can help build a house in the upcoming post-apocalyptic wasteland. Not only that, it's really efficient about it. Say I had found a source of plywood that had escaped the destruction and used this mathematical method to build my house. Well, the great thing about this is because it's a mathematical idea, it comes from the shapes, it wastes no plywood. No, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna waste any plywood. Yeah. The building that Edmund and I are talking about has a name. It's called the Hexayurt. Designed by Vinay Gupta, the Hexayurt is a simple relief structure that can be built with basic materials. Four by eight foot rectangular sheets, a hammer, some nails, things that are available in most local supply chains. The thinking required to get such a design is anything but simple though. You have this, this process going from thinking about, you start from a real world thing, the material. You have these four foot by eight foot sheets of plywood or insulation material. There's lots of stuff which comes in two by one rectangles. You take only that into the abstract world, two by one rectangle. And you play around with it and you see what shapes you can make. But you know that any shape you can make with two by one rectangles without allowing to do cuts but without waste can then be manufactured in some way from those materials. So it's the classic mathematical thing of abstracting a problem dealing with it in the abstract where you can ignore certain real-world issues and then pulling that back into the real world and dealing with the specific things there. Gupta's solution was elegant. He created a structure that uses six of the sheets as walls, creating a four-foot-high hexagon where each side is eight feet long, and a roof created by cutting six more of the sheets along the diagonal and connecting them back together to make six triangles, each of which is eight feet high and has an eight-foot base. All of these triangles are then attached to the hexagonal wall. And there you have it, a structure created from 12 4 by 8 foot sheets that has no waste. And you get a little building. It's 8 foot tall in the middle, 4 foot tall at the edge, so you do have to bend down to, to, to get in. But it's a fairly strong building, just from, because it's made of sheets of material with very few cuts, and it's also... Um, the, the lines of force are, are reasonably well, well spread out. So it's a, a strong, simple structure that you can put together basically with the knowledge of how to use a hammer and a saw. There was a problem with the Hexiart, and it just so happened to be one that was asking for a mathematician's touch. Uh, personally, I became involved in this when I, I met up with, with Vinay, and uh, he... He had this little hexayurt thing, but it's not, it's a fairly small building, even the stretched ones. And as soon as you start going to some of the ways of extending it, you lose some of the, the strength properties it has. It becomes a weaker structure. So he, he said, well, you're a geometer. Here's the problem. Let's get some bigger buildings. And I was able to, to think about it a bit, and I came up with two different um, dome structures. They're actually quite closely related. They both come from different ways of slicing through a 
truncated octahedron with the hexagonal faces replaced by these um, hexagonal-based pyramids. So they're called the tridome and the quaddome. The tridome is a traditional hexagon roof, uh, but you actually put square panels on three of the edges. And between each, the, the, um, you put half roofs, so three of the triangles together. Well, the half roofs actually end up with slightly different angles, but this whole thing then squats down and you have a sort of tent-shaped structure. The quad dome, you start off with a square, so that's just two of your two-by-one rectangles. So with plywood sheets, for example, it would be an eight-foot-by-eight-foot square. And you attach to each of the edges of the square a full traditional roof. So you've now got this square with four roofs going down. That leaves some little gaps, and those gaps can be made with a half square. And there's an easy way of turning one sheet in, into the eight foot by eight foot square cut in half. So you can then, you, you then get a full dome that's resting on the ground. So that's the quad dome. And so if you want to create even larger structures, you can start putting quad domes together. And one I've worked on, I, I call the Hexagon Cathedral, is to put four quad domes together, and then you put, you imagine putting a fifth one right on, on top of it. And so you, you get this, this larger structure, and I think it's 18 to 20 foot tall in the middle. So you're, you're now not thinking about people who can build with just using a a hammer and a <laughs> saw, you're talking about a more seriously engineered structure. Uh, what would the, the, the benefits of these over your uh, traditional hexagons be? They're larger. They have uh, multiple rooms now? Or like, are there rooms built in? Or are they all still open space? It's still open space, but you could have it as a schoolroom or as a, uh, a meeting room or just as a larger house with greater floor area. These new structures open up a universe of useful possibilities. The tridome could be the house of a large family, the quad dome could be a school, and the Hexayurt Cathedral could live up to its name and actually become a place of worship. After all, let's not forget the original intent for the Hexayurt design. Well, we, we began this by talking about you know, post-apocalyptic worlds. Well, scale that back a bit and look at post-natural disaster situations. Traditionally, when there's a massive destruction of property, what happens is that hundreds of relief tents are shipped in. And that's not so bad. People get a roof over their heads. Unfortunately, a relief tent will only really be good for about a year. You know, Think about a tent in constant use in, in, in the world. And after a year, it's rotten. The interest and the donations from the world have moved on. You know, the tragedy is over in the eyes of the rest of the world. So you have people living in these increasingly failing structures with no prospect. If, they have, if they've been there for a year, they clearly don't have good prospects of moving on. And so with the, the hexayurt, firstly, you have something that can be, uh, it's 
competes on price with a standard relief tent. It's quite easy to transport. The materials, in many cases, are available in the local supply chain. Also, if you put them together with screws, you have a building that people potentially could take down and they can take their building with them. And so you, you basically turn a temporary tent structure into a semi-permanent structure that can at least last for, or gives a longer window before people have to find other options. Many hex yurts have already been built. And this past year at Burning Man, they also constructed a tri-dome and a quad-dome. Something that Edmund was rather happy about. Well, it's obviously fantastic when, you know, whether through building or through other ways, people take your ideas and actually develop them in their own ways, especially if they develop them in ways that go beyond what you're able to do. And although I like making things, I have, I've spent a long part of my life learning abstract mathematical thinking skills. And that means I've spent less time, I have less time available to learn how to use, um, you know, how to do engineering type tasks and, 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 and the practical things. And so it's great to see people taking the ideas that I can come up with that, that might, might not, well, ho I hope I gain something from those abstract thinking skills, so it's things they can't necessarily do, and take it and add in their skills to the mix. But... It's also just in general, if you're coming up with ideas, you're coming up with work, you want other people to take it on board and to develop it further. And to have such a concrete um, instance of people really taking my work and investing their own time, money and effort into it is just, it's a wonderful feeling. When I asked Edmund how other people might also be able to develop this tool, this ability to reason geometrically, he had a couple of ideas. First, you should do what you can in order to develop a general sense of how three-dimensional space works. And to do that, he suggested that you should play. Specifically, you should play with some sort of building toy, something like Lego or Zome Tool. He then said that once you have started to develop some idea of how space and form actually work, you should start to investigate some of the mathematics used to model three dimensions. Finally, you should use 3D software and programming especially programming, to test your newfound intuition. And the nice thing about mixing programming with this geometric intuition and a little bit of the understanding of how, for example, you can use three numbers to describe a point in, in Cartesian space, when you combine those things, um, you're, you have a way of testing your ideas very quickly. So instead of having to work on an idea, then go and talk to someone and find that there's an error in it, you can actually implement that idea on the computer. If it does what you want, you're, you're great. But if it doesn't do what you expect it to, you can often find how you're going wrong because the wrong idea will, won't generate something that looks, generally, the wrong idea generates something that looks completely ludicrous. And so I think those things of playing with, with Lego and construction toys programming and using programming and mathematical methods to describe three-dimensional objects with three-dimensional software are the, the skills that people should be, be working on. Edmund would not let me leave, though, without adding this one last piece of information about mathematics, academics, witch doctors, and their relative importance. I think the best descriptions of mathematicians, or in fact academics in general, that I've heard was given to me by a Fijian 
and I was visiting his village in the center of Vanuelevu, and he said, talking about the witch doctor, it's really important that we have him, but it'd be a really real disaster if we were all like that. And I think academics have a similar, that's a good ac definition of a academics, that it's an important thing for society or community to have. They, they play a role that isn't possible without that level of specialization, but it's important that not everybody has those skills, otherwise we wouldn't be able to do far more important things like plumbing. So essentially what you're saying, uh, the apocalypse comes around, instead of surrounding yourself with mathematicians, surround yourself with plumbers. I think that would be, you'd be in far better shape. Yeah. You might, you'd have clean water. <laughs> <laughs>